Welcome to Stories from Every Day, a podcast about finding the stories in the world around us. This is episode two, Bird Dogs in Vietnam. Thanks for joining me. Bugs everywhere. Uh, I had snakes crawling over the top of me. Uh, I spent several nights uh, chest deep in water. Did a lot of things, some of them I'm proud of and some of them not so proud of. That's called war, I guess. Welcome again to Stories from Every Day. Today I'm talking with Mike McGrath, a uh, Vietnam veteran uh, with some pretty amazing things to say. Um, How I met Mike's kind of interesting. I ran into him in Best Buy. We began talking and... Honestly, I was kind of blown away by by some of his stories and, and what he was telling me. Um, he was gracious enough to invite me over to record uh, the conversation we're about to listen to. Um, so to paint the picture for you, this episode we're uh, we're sitting in Mike's living room, surrounded by his his wonderful collection of books. Um, the sounds of his house crept into our conversation. the The conversation we had uh, essentially had three phases. Um, kind of his, his preparation for Vietnam, how he found himself there, which I, I thought was kind of important, um, his time overseas, and then his uh, experiences uh, after the war. Now, Mike tells of his preparation for Vietnam in a very matter-of-fact manner. He's a humble guy and didn't think that his experiences in the grand scheme of things were anything special. You'll even notice that, at one point, he completely glosses over his deployment, saying simply that he went to Vietnam and then came home. But eventually, he gets more comfortable talking about the deployment, and then his stories are captivating. The conversation was long, but I thought it was so important to tell Mike's complete story, from enlisting to present day, that I didn't want to cut anything out, so I divided it into two episodes. If you liked the first part, please tune into the second to hear about Mike's return to the United States. Mike also uses quite a bit of military jargon in the first 10 minutes of this episode and I wanted to quickly explain a few of the terms he uses so that everyone can easily follow the story. You'll hear him use the term MOS multiple times. This stands for Military Occupational Specialty and is another term for a soldier's job. He mentions some enlisted ranks by saying E followed by a number, for example, E2 or E3. All you need to understand for this podcast is that E stands for enlisted and the higher the number, the higher the rank. The term OCS stands for Officer Candidate School, which is where enlisted soldiers go to become officers. And lastly, DI stands for Drill Instructor, and Darby's Rangers were an elite unit during World War II. I'll include a list of these terms and a few others on the blog. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Go. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so just talk about, yeah, uh, your my story here. Michael McGrath, RA 18771304. Um, I don't think they use those numbers anymore. I don't think so. <laughs> that was my serial number. Um, I was looking into going into the military, so I took all the different tests from the various uh, branches. 
this is back in the in the mid '60s after I graduated from high school. The Vietnam War was going and the draft was going, so I went looking for uh, what I could find. And my dad said if I went into the Air Force, he'd shoot me dead because he worked for them for 19 years. I'm not that fond of ships, so you know I went and took the Navy tests, but they. I did really good on the tests. It was, uh, I mean, really good. I was, eventually they said I was what were called, was called HAP qualified, high aptitude potential, because my test scores were, you know, up near the top. Uh, they tried to get me to uh, enlist and go into OCS, and I said, eh. So uh, eventually I got my draft notice, and, so, and I said, uh, no, I do not want to be a crunchy walking the rice paddies all day. Uh, so I went down and enlisted. I was gonna, go, I wanted to go into military intelligence. And yes, I know people say that's an oxymoron, but. Uh, I've, I've heard similar uh, thoughts expressed today. Yes, but. Uh, but that's what I wanted to do. And I went down to the uh, induction center in LA and this old, old uh, master sergeant was there and he says, well, you, uh, you're RA unassigned, which meant that I had no preference. They could put you anywhere. It would be horrible. Well, he didn't know about what was going on with my, uh, the guy who was, uh, uh, getting me into the service, uh, or about my test scores. So he says, you need to have, a, a an MOS that you can transfer. He said, uh, put yourself in for. Uh, personnel, and you can transfer into uh, uh, request to transfer into intelligence. Uh, being 19 and very stupid, I said, okay. So I eventually made it to Fort Bliss, Texas in May and uh, graduated in, in July. Uh, my DI was a pretty interesting guy because he was one of Darby's original Rangers. Really? He was an E7, repeatedly. Uh, <laughs> he had a little bit of a drinking problem, but he had been with Darby, uh, he'd been at Point de Hoc. Wow. And he was still in the Army when I was there in 66. And uh, he, he was something else. I'm sure you've heard the expression firm but fair. Yes. Well, this guy was a hard ass from the word go. He says, my job is not to be your friend, not to be your your bunkmate or or your buddy or your father. I'm here to make sure that, uh, that you stay alive. And he worked our asses off. Hmm. Uh, because Fort Bliss is so far from uh, anywhere, <laughs> they didn't have any, any uh, ranges at Fort Bliss. We had to travel in cattle cars to New Mexico, to White Sands, to go to the rifle ranges. So we were up at 3 o'clock in the morning to, uh, to make it to, uh, by daylight to the rifle range. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that was fun. Graduated uh, from basic and went to Fort Ord, where I went to personnel school. Uh, graduated... Uh, in the in the top of the class uh i faked not knowing how to type because i did not want to end up being a clerk typist 
Uh, although I took a typing class in personnel school, I did really bad at it because I did not want to become a typist for three years. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up in personal management school at uh, Indianapolis, uh, Fort Benjamin Harrison. Okay. Uh, it's also the Ar not only the Army Personnel School, but the also uh, the Army Finance School for all the payroll people. Went there, and we. I'm really proud of what I did there because there were 70 guys in our class. This was uh, to be an MOS uh, 71H30. You got an increase in skill level uh, to personnel management as opposed to personnel specialist. And... Here I was in E2, but we had uh, E6s, E7s, E8s, all in the same school, in the same class. And I ended up 17th out of a class of 70, which I thought was pretty good. After that, uh, ended up at Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland, uh, got assigned uh, to uh, Ordnance OCS. It was fine. My first duty station was clear across the country from Southern California, of course. We're talking the Army here. But I got to go to, to uh, take weekends and go to uh, D.C., and I toured the Smithsonian and the White House and the, the, uh, the Capitol building, got into the underground. The TAC officers decided, uh, well, they... If one of the candidates saw a TAC officer, he had to hold a salute as soon as he saw him and walk toward him, you know, holding that salute. Well, they decided that it wasn't enough just for the, for the candidates, the, the officer candidates to do that. Everybody needed to do that. And I said, really? It, was, it got so bad, I swear I should have just gone into the school because I was doing the same thing they were doing, <laughs> even though I was running all their personnel records. So I put in a request for transfer to Vietnam. <laughs> uh, it was getting that bad. <laughs> that says something. It, yeah, it, it was. It was really getting intense. Uh, they were very full of themselves. So I went to Vietnam uh, after about 90 days. Uh, never did get into intelligence. That's, a, that's another whole whole series of stories about Vietnam. My, my, my first night there, they had a hurricane. First night. First night. Yep. Flew Braniff, uh, all the way, uh, across the pond, uh, got the government sponsored tour of Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of things happened there. Uh, did a lot of things. Some of them I'm, proud of and some of them not so proud of that's called war i guess mm. uh, anyway after after did my tour i came back went from vietnam to fort carson colorado <laughs> it's a change well it was in july so it was it was uh yeah i, I missed july 4th twice going both going there and coming um because you cross the international date line anyway the uh, that's that's basically what I did in the army, and then I left. Uh, uh, I ETS out of uh, out of Fort Carson. 
that was that was it. And I got out, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Do you mind? Do you mind if I ask what you? Um, what was your MOS? What was your job over overseas? Well, I had several. Uh, actually, I had three MOSs that I actually was given, although I had others. Uh, I was in uh, personnel management. Uh, they uh, they OJT'd me on payroll, mm-hmm. so I became a payroll clerk. And I ran the battalion newspaper, so I was uh, uh, whatever the MOS is for that. I uh, I, I wouldn't know. This uh, this was back in the days of, of manual typewriters and uh, uh, what do you call them uh, the the, mach- uh, the the machines that uh, turn the you turn the crank and it prints copy. Like it's not a printing press, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, you had to type on a special plasticized sheet and. You had to have everything perfect because you couldn't back up and change it. You had to put a piece of dab a piece of plastic on there, and to, if you made a mistake, and type over it after it dried. Right. <laughs> wow. It's not a dictograph, but it's mimeograph. Ah, old mimeograph. Uh, yeah, that was fun. But I would uh, I would go uh, TDY down to uh, Saigon to MACV headquarters to uh, uh, the colonel in charge of uh, the press for the, for, for the entire opera, uh, theater and uh, get my stories cleared through MACV before I could print them in my newspaper. Wow. <laughs> I did that twice a month. Wow. And so what was the audience for this new newspaper was? It was basically uh, everybody in the battalion. Uh, it was the 223rd Combat Support Aviation Battalion. Uh there in Queen Yon, uh, and they would send, and it was basically the uh, each company had their own information officer as a secondary duty, or tertiary or quaternary, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they would submit stories to battalion, and I would take them. Uh, and to be real honest with you, sometimes I had to clean up the language. Uh, and the punctuation was sometimes less than standard. Uh, <laughs> so I would clean these up, type them up, take them down. To, uh, get a, I got a uh, MACV press pass because I was doing this so often. It was given to me by uh, MACV itself. So I had... Uh, I had priority over everybody on any plane with the exception of uh, uh, combat missions, uh, medevacs, and POWs. I could literally bump anybody off of a plane. I bumped the colonel off a plane once. He was not happy, but I I needed to get down there, and and that MACV press pass was gold. So anyway, that was, that was what I did. Um, had a lot of interest. I worked under the, uh, the S2, um, did a lot of interesting things. We got, uh, 
got to take the uh, the Filipino uh, jungle survival class. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> uh, it was uh, well, that was interesting. We uh, we never got caught. We were in in three man teams, and we had an officer, an old grizzled major. Uh, and I say old grizzled, I mean like he'd been in World War II active uh, and he had been called back in because they needed they needed his expertise and we got to the base there in the Philippines it was a it was just a, a 10-day course uh, they we had a few days of, of lectures and hands-on looking at stuff and then they sent us out dropped us out in the middle of nowhere and we had to find our way back and of course we were being hunted and the object was to you survive as long as you can and then you get captured and you go through the the POW camp and you learn that and then they send you back and you have all this great knowledge well what they didn't know was the officer that was in our three-man group had a specialty that was classified. He had been one of the guys left behind to organize the resistance in the Philippines. Oh, dear. <laughs> he spent four freaking years in the damn jungle. <laughs> and he knew every trick in the book to keep from getting caught because he'd literally spent four years hiding from the Japanese. And he says, guys, we're not going to get caught. And we all said, but everybody gets caught. That's the whole point. No, we're not going to get caught. And we didn't. We were the only group that never got caught. So you missed that whole final POW phase. Oh, yeah, phase. I missed all of that. I have <laughs> no idea. I was so happy. Um, it's where I learned to eat things I never knew were edible. Yeah. And how to get water out of hanging vines. Wow. Stuff like that. Fun stuff. But we made it. But it was, uh, you know, that was just a a, a ten day little thing that that uh, uh, I was able to get because my uh, uh, the S two was uh, uh, believed in everybody getting that kind of training. He had gone through it, and he says anybody who works for me is going to go through it too. So he put in a request, and it was approved, and off I went. So and had a good time. It sounds like. <laughs> It was, I got bugs everywhere. Uh, I had snakes crawling over the top of me. Uh, I spent several nights uh, chest deep in water, uh, hiding. Uh, it was uh, it was an interesting, if unpleasant, experience. Did you ever come close to getting caught? If... Guys walking three feet away from you and not seeing you as close, yes. That's, that's pretty impressive. Well, that was, that was the problem with, with fighting in jungle warfare. You could literally be standing next to someone within three feet and never know they were there. Just if they were being quiet, you'd walk right past them and never see them. Wow. And it, it's, you know, it's, we had the heat. And the humidity. I mean, you know, when it's 103 degrees and pouring down rain, you don't dry off. 
you just sweat constantly. You used to take a shower, scrub yourself, and dry off and walk from the shower back to your barracks, and you'd be sopping wet from the sweat because the humidity would be like 100% and over 100 degrees in heat, which is why I don't do the South anymore. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, <laughs> I don't blame you at all. It just nasty. Um, I was actually much more familiar with desert because being born and raised in Southern California, we used to go out to the desert all the time uh, with the Boy Scouts uh, in desert camps. But I didn't do that. We weren't fighting in the desert. We were fighting in the jungle. jungle. So You were like 50 years too early. There you go. There you go. <laughs> really, or, yeah. or maybe 30 years too late because, uh, you know, we did fight in North Africa in World War II. That's true. So you just, you just fell right in the middle. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and the jungle period. Yeah. And, it, and the jungle is an interesting place. It's... Uh, yeah, you can't see for shit. Uh, you can trip over everything from landmines to to snakes to you name it. Uh, a lot of poisonous snakes, a lot of animals you can eat. Uh, it's a it's a very alive place, and you might be all alone, but there's all this stuff around you that's just constantly moving and alive it's just it's a it's a i would love to go back and see it without the danger of getting shot at (laughs) so anyway uh did did you spend much time in the jungle in in vietnam do you ever have to go out oh yeah a few times i i spent most of my time flying over it Mm. Uh, I was an observer in in uh, what we called bird dogs. It's a uh, it'd been around since World War II. Uh, single engine, two passenger, one behind the other, with a throttle and a stick to control it, and and foot pedals. Uh, and uh, the windows on both sides, you could literally unhook them and latch them up over the head so you were, had nothing out there but just air. And we would uh, look for traces of the enemy. We'd wow. uh, cruise at about 90 miles an hour, 90 knots, which is 100 miles an hour, I guess. Uh, we weren't supposed to fly lower than 500 feet. <laughs> weren't supposed to. Weren't supposed to. We weren't supposed to ever be in Laos or Cambodia either. Hmm. Never flew over either one of them, I swear. <laughs> um, I was in what was called Tukor, which was south of uh, Da Nang uh, and uh, north of Saigon. So it was basically the middle of the country. You might have heard of a place called Pleiku or Anke. Mm-hmm. That was us. That was our area, and uh, we, our battalion, was the uh, was the center for all fixed wing uh, army aviation. And we had companies out throughout uh, th- throughout the area, uh, spread out everywhere uh, for observation in specific areas. But uh, we were the headquarters for all of it. 
we had a, a, a brigade headquarters uh, in Saigon. We had a higher headquarters in the train. Uh, but uh, basically all we had was a collapsible stock M16 and, uh, and four white phosphorus marking rockets. That's it. That's it. And you'd fly out just you and, and, the, and pilot. the pilot. Yep. All by ourselves. Wow. Now, that was most of the time. Uh, actually, the very first time we I, I flew, it, I'll never forget him. His name was Captain Hawkins, and he didn't come back. Uh, really nice guy. Uh, he, uh, we were coming back off a mission. And we hadn't seen squat. I mean, nothing. My very first mission, and it was like uh, two, three hours. We'd flown over all kinds of stuff, and there was just nothing to see. Hmm. Everybody was either hiding good or they weren't there. Don't have, don't have a clue. So we're on our way back, and... The way Quinion is, it's on a spit of land that sticks out into the ocean. I'd have to draw you a picture, but anyway, it's on a it's on a spit like that, mm-hmm. and the runway is across the base of it. Big city, over a hundred thousand people surrounded us. Oh. And to the north of us was a uh, a river that emptied into the into a bay, and we were on the south end of that bay. So we're flying along, and he says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get down low and check out uh, some of the people on the on the on the riverbanks, see how they're doing, see what's going on." So we got lower and lower and lower, and we're pretty soon we're so low that they had little pontoon bridges over the river. We had to raise up to get over these <laughs> things, and. We're looking out, and I'm just scared to death because I just know that we're going to get shot at. We're so low that we're, we would be an easy target for somebody with a machine gun to, to take us out. But we got back, and uh, we still had a, our, the, uh, the ordnance on board, so the crew chief came out and was putting the pins in the ordnance, the safety pins, and he said, Captain Hawkins, were you on that river looking at women taking baths again? He said, how did you know? He said, well, sure, you got water on the wheels. <laughs> oh, damn, I keep forgetting about that, he said. And they grinned at each other, and I'm going, holy shit. <laughs> that, that was my introduction to, to aerial observation. <laughs> but I went on a lot more missions, and... Actually, the last uh, the last mission I was supposed to have with Captain Hawkins, um, he was assigned a newbie uh, who'd never done it. Any he was a new new guy in the in the in the group who uh, little PFC first mission, and they put him with one of the most experienced pilots, Captain Hawkins, and. <laughs> And uh, they went up and never came back. I was literally walking to the bird with my gear, my flak vest, and my, my rifle, and everything else. 
Uh, and uh, they called me back and said they were sending this this new kid out there and uh, they didn't come back. Uh, we sent out search parties by helicopter and 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 uh, observer planes and we found him found his bird in a in a rice paddy right on the edge of a rice paddy and they'd both been shot in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, the plane had been shot down and uh, he'd been he and the, and the, the, the observer had were both executed. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we uh, we got a, a big Chinook to come in and uh, lift the bird out. And we weren't going to, you know, we could have destroyed it, but it was, it was, we had the capability to, to haul it out. So we did. And, uh, that was, uh, that was Captain Hawkins. Great pilot. Really top drawer. Frustrated fighter pilot. He really was. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, lots of things like that. Wow. Can't even, I can't imagine. What did, so you're looking for, looking for the enemy. What, what kind of signs, what did you look for? Uh, if we were in over the triple canopy jungle, uh, we were basically looking for signs of, of, uh, road work. Okay. Because what would happen, uh, if they, were, uh, and I know this because we actually found a, a road, a roadhead that they were building from Contum South through the jungle, uh, and they had heavy equipment. So there was a, literally a cloud of dust in the air over where this was being built. And we, so we could see where that was. A lot of times we would see uh, activity in the in in little vills, villages. We would look for uh, movements of people in uh, uh, in groups, straight lines, walking walking along the rice paddy, usually wearing black. Hmm. That was their uniform. It was black. We called them black pajamas, uh, but they were basically uh, a, a light cotton in black that was sort of like their uniform hmm. although they certainly wore other things uh yes if they were going into cities they would wear clothes that would blend in mm-hmm. uh but anything that looked different than normal and i imagine you became pretty familiar with the with what was normal with what was normal after oh, a yeah. while oh yeah um it was a real good sign that there was the enemy in the area if you started taking fire <laughs> That's what we call an indicator. <laughs> yeah, it, it was definitely an indicator. Uh, I remember one time we were flying along, just checking things out. And we heard this ping. And uh, I had no idea what it was. The captain knew what it was immediately. He, the, the plane had been hit uh, with small arm. Single shot, at least only one that hit. And we turned the plate on the side so that we could look straight down. And there was a single hut 
with a guy standing out front of it with a rifle. And he was shooting at us. So, I'll never forget Captain Hawkins says, Oh no, nobody shoots at my bird. This is my baby. So, we circled around, went downrange, and came back fairly high, and went in at an angle, and he fired one of the white phosphorus rockets so close to where this guy was shooting at us that it didn't have time to arm. And he caught the guy right in the chest with that rocket. Wow. It was wow. pure de luck. But it literally buried itself in the ground. It never went off. But he was pissed that somebody had hit his plane. Like I said, a frustrated fighter pilot. <laughs> Apparently. Oh, he But he, talented it sounds like. Oh, he was he was far and away the best pilot I ever flew with. And I flew with a bunch of them. He was, he was, well, there's another reason I call him a frustrated fighter pilot. He decided that he didn't like the way his plane was, was outfitted. And he, he and his crew chief were something of scrounges. He went out to, he sent his crew chief out and found four, two more uh, rocket attachments, uh, the tubes, uh, and put them next to the, the the two he had on the plane, one under each wing. There were two tubes uh, with with an attachment. He got two more, so he had four, a total of eight rockets. And they went and found some HE. <laughs> These are the two point seven five inch rockets. Yeah. The ones they're still using, yeah. Well, I'm sure they've modified them some, but so he had four white phosphorus and four HEs, and he thought that was pretty cool because he could not only mark the target, but then he could blow it up. This is cool, yeah. right? Works for me. But that wasn't enough. So he took the seat out of the back of the plane. So he didn't have an observer. He was in there by himself. And he mounted two M60 machine guns under the wings with the, with the belt. Uh, they have the, the feeder, feeder lines that he put. He had like 1,000 rounds of ammunition in the, in the, uh, all hooked up on, on belts in the, in the back seat and wound these things up to the machine guns and mounted these these uh, these feeder lines to the size of machine guns. So he had two machine guns that he could fire and eight rockets on his little plane. Now, <laughs> that, is, uh, that is quite the arsenal for a... Well, he was very proud of himself because he not only could mark things, but he could tear them up. He was coming off a mission... I'll never forget. It was incredible. It was just, it never made the news only by the grace of God and a couple of generals. But he was coming back off a mission in that same river area that I told you about that he and I went on. Mm -hmm. And he was coming into the base and he looked down and he saw two flat bottom boats 
with people with binoculars. Now, this is about five miles from the base, hmm. north of the base, in a swampy, grassy, you know, the river comes in, and it's sort of a delta area. And he goes, uh, they're off the end of the base. They've got binoculars. There's a bunch of them out there. Uh, what am I seeing here? So he calls up and says to the uh, fire control people, he says, can you tell me if there's supposed to be anybody in this area, any friendlies? He said, we don't have any friendlies. We'll check with our Vietnamese counterparts, which they had to do before they would give you the, the, the fire, unless you were being fired on, you know, you know rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. So they get a hold of the uh, Vietnamese fire control people. They have no idea of anything. Uh, so he's given permission to fire. This is obviously some sort of spy mission. Mm -hmm. He cuts loose with both machine guns, all rockets, the whole bit. There's nothing left but splinters. And he came back to base empty and was very proud of himself. He knew he was going to get a medal for, for, for killing off all these people spying on the airbase. Well, about a week later, here comes... Uh, our colonel, who was in charge of our, our battalion, we had a full bird colonel in charge of, of uh, an aviation battalion because there were so many officers. Mm -hmm. uh, aviation is one of the only types of outfits, at least back then, that could have a major as a company commander because uh, you're dealing with lieutenants and captains. Mm -hmm. So uh, the colonel shows up with a general in tow. He was a one-star. And the general said, okay, where is the pilot who destroyed the two boats? Well, Captain Hawkins knew he was going to get a medal. And so he shows up. I just happened to be in the waiting room there. So we're standing there at attention with this general and our colonel. Uh, and... <laughs> And the general, general says, Captain Hawkins, yes, sir, big grin on his face. Do you know who was in that boat, those boats that you destroyed? No, sir. They were the enemy, sir. No, Captain. That was the Natrang Birdwatching Society. Oh, dear. It was the mayor and his wife and the chief of police of his and his wife and all the muckety-mucks in the entire city in the Trang were destroyed because they never got permission to be in the area. They didn't tell anybody they were doing it. They were too important to tell anybody what they were doing. So they were all killed. Uh, Captain Hawkins did not get a medal for it. Yeah. He felt really bad after that, mm. but they couldn't do anything to him because he, because he'd done everything by the book. Right. So he got told no medal for you, son, but, uh, you follow the book. So we cannot court martial you for this. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he was something else. He, he also, the, the general says, how in the hell 
did you do that much damage to those boats? Uh, because all the stuff he had on his plane was totally unauthorized. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we had to explain to the general what he had done to his plane. He says, the general says, take it off. I don't want to hear about any more boating accidents with you. Yes, sir. And the general turned around and walked out the door. So anyway, he had to go back to being a regular, uh, pilot with nothing special except his four rockets which he sounds like he was pretty good with he was he <laughs> was uh we literally he we we were we found one of my highlights for myself was i was on a mission with him where we found a road it was being made from contum south and we got the honor of uh standing off about five miles and watching Arclight take it out. Wow. That's uh, the B-52s. Dropping 500-pound bombs in clusters. And they destroyed the entire... They had... Uh, they found the pieces. Uh, but they... It was almost an entire company of, uh, of North Vietnamese... Not, not Viet Cong, but North Vietnamese uh, engineers. They had heavy equipment. You know, they had tracked vehicles and dump trucks and everything building up an elevated road through the jungle. Hmm. And uh, when Arclight got finished with them, there was nothing left but chunks. Wow. So, and we got to stand off, like I said, five, ten miles and watch it. It's uh, probably one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in my life. Wow. When, uh, when they've got you know, three ships, three B-52s, dropping bombs. Every one of them is 500-pounder, and there's dozens of them going downrange. And it was, the shock waves were enough even that far away to shake our plane. Even miles away. Even miles away, yeah. It wow. was incredible. Uh, they didn't want us any closer than five miles because our little bird dog was... So delicate that uh, they were they were literally afraid. They they said, "Yeah, you found it. This is really great. It's wonderful. We've been looking for this thing for months. You found it. You get to watch us destroy it." So that was really cool. But I tell you, even at five miles away, we were getting the 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 plane was just shaking in the air. Wow! So the shock waves were that intense. So. Anyway, fun stuff. The um, so you mentioned the uh, the the Vietnamese the duck hunter who was taking taking pot shots at your plane. <laughs> was that was that terribly common? Like taking fire like that? Or uh, yes and no. There was there was one old guy. I'll never forget. He uh, he was a uh, he was an old retired farmer type off the end of the of the uh, uh, I think it was the Natrang runway. Uh, he lived by himself. He had an old French single shot rifle. Literally, you had to load it with a round, lock it in, fire it, open it up. The round ejected, you have to put another one in. 
he lived oh quarter mile half mile from the end of the runway and the Viet Cong I'm assuming uh, got a hold of this guy and convinced him that his duty was to shoot at uh, American aircraft flying off the runway they taught him how to lead the plane six lengths and then sh shoot it and just to harass everybody knew the guy was there everybody knew he would fire a shot but they always took off a little faster than, than normal uh, off that particular runway and he would always miss he never ever was able to hit any birds hmm. but he was there nobody cared he was sort of like the comic relief with his with his single shot it was an old french single shot rifle, rifle. <laughs> probably from the 40s right and uh you know picked up off an old uh you know a dead french soldier uh but he we just left him alone he was you know he wasn't really hurting anybody hmm. uh you know for all the things that 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 i saw and did over there i think the scariest though i gotta tell you was uh i was coming back from saigon and in a c-123 uh, and they said yeah we're gonna land at queen yon so i said I'm your guy, so I'm just I'm just baggage. And um, we didn't land at Queen Yan. We went to Da Nang. And as we're getting close to Queen Yan, I said, uh, "Guys, I've got to get back there. I've got a I've got a deadline to get the paper out. I've got my stories clear through MacVie." And said, "You have a parachute." Now I've never jumped in my life. I'm in I'm in uh, khakis with low quarter shoes. But I'm getting ready to jump out of this plane because I've got a deadline. And the captain of the plane comes back and he says, uh, uh, "Son, if you uh, if you promise not to jump out of my plane, uh, when we uh, when we fly out of Da Nang, I'll I'll drop you off. Promise." Okay, sir. I won't jump out of your plane. Thank you, because I had the parachute on. I was going to become, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, really stupid. You know, that's what you do when you're 20, 21 years old. You, you do stupid stuff like that and mean it because you're invincible and unkillable. So we land at Da Nang, offloads his cargo, which wasn't much, and he loads the entire interior of this plane with boxes, Box, pallets of boxes. And we're sitting on top of these boxes. The plane takes off. And uh, the crew chief says, can't smoke now. I said, why not? Well, you know what's in these boxes? I said, no. He said, they're M60. <laughs> or they're, they're uh, 60 millimeter mortar rounds. We had thousands of them. I was never so scared in my life that we were going to get hit with something, anything 
with with all these you know there would have been nothing we would have been vaporized if those things had ever gone off but we landed and made it safe and uh uh that was it you know but there was about an hour and a half there where i was petrified (laughs) but we used to do stuff like that and you know it's just you make do with what you have and and scrounge what you can't and you know it's, it was just it's a bunch of guys doing the best they can with you know to stay alive and make sure that their buddies do too that's that was what we did I don't know about you, but I found that last statement particularly moving. In fact, I find this whole interview moving. Mike was really just a young kid whose life was changed in so many ways by the Vietnam War. He found himself overseas because his country asked him to serve, and I think, I mean, I'm sure we all think, it's important to understand how the trajectory of his entire life changed because our country sent him and many others overseas. I really hope you're able to listen to the second part of the interview where Mike talks about coming home and dealing with his experiences, both in his home and in American society. It's pretty incredible. You can find a picture of Mike at www.storiesfromeveryday.com, where you can find more details on all of our episodes. And as always, I really appreciate your feedback and your constructive criticism. That's it for this time. 